Forward Guidance is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. I'm very pleased to welcome Adrian Helfert, Chief Investment Officer at Westwood Holdings Group, to Forward Guidance. Adrian, welcome. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Adrian, so you, you work on a lot of multi-asset investments. So I think asset allocation between stocks and bonds. Later on, I want to ask you, what is your allocation now? You know, are you favoring stocks over bonds or bonds over stocks and why? But first I want to just start off, you know, in the asset allocation process, how do you think about stocks and bonds and the role that they play in a portfolio? And then we'll get into, you know, why you might favor one or the other. But for start off, start off with the building blocks. You know, what are the upsides and downs, pros and cons of stocks and bonds? Yeah, great question. And, and that is the place to start, certainly. And there are two real houses or schools of thought here. One is where I stand, which is both of them serve as total return opportunities. Each of the categories serve as total return opportunities. And you have changing correlations over time to how those mixes fit together. The other one is that bonds will always serve as the buffer or the haven and stocks will serve as your total return opportunity. You only have to look at 2022, where the ag was down 13-ish percent, and stocks were down almost 20%. If you look at the S&P 500 and realize that your safe haven didn't work. So we think more in the realm of many of these categories are total return opportunities. We look at bonds as having good income and potential for capital appreciation. We can talk about the plethora of categories, whether it's corporate bonds or mortgages or U.S. treasuries, secured and unsecured, high yield and investment grade. Of course, there's a, there's a large amount of potential there, all of which are total return opportunities. And the equity side is, of course, also very diverse in its orientation. And these are total return opportunities. We are fundamental investors. That's where that's where I come from. So I'm looking at each of these individual investments as a potential for, I'd like to see uh, a good total return or a, a capital appreciation potential. Income is, of course, important as well for many investors. And for us, we find that an important myth and orientation in many of our funds to have that. So bonds provide usually more of that. But there's both components. And the mix of that, the middle of that is, are these things correlated? You can take a view on when they should be correlated and when they may not be correlated or they're less correlated. As I say, you have to look at 2022 and realize that that latter party of bonds are always your safe haven doesn't always work that way. So I we believe more in the owning across a cross section of opportunities, understanding the correlations change over time and looking for total return in each individual asset class. Is there something about bonds that they're maybe a little bit more safe? that justifies their lower expected return. And I might ask, do you uh, agree with the claim that bonds are a lower return investment than stocks? Oftentimes I tell investors that, that bring this up, I've looked at the volatility and the, the return volatility of the 30-year U.S. Treasury. Do we think that the U.S. Treasury is going to default in 30 years? Of course not. It's, this is a what we would call a risk-free asset. Is it possible? We have to look to that, you know, discussions and think, yes, it's possible, but it's a, it's a risk-free asset but it has a lot of volatility based on economic differentials. And as much volatility as many equity asset classes, bonds also on a total return basis of getting your bond return right can provide significant upside. High yield bonds, which are 
corporate bonds that are lower in quality, of course, than investment grade, but still many large companies that you know and have heard of and buy their goods from, from Walmart and elsewhere, returned 13% last year. That's not far off of what the equal weighted S&P 500, the average of all the companies returned last year as well. So bonds and getting that good selection right can return as much as equities. On the whole, you also get that kicker of usually more income from your bonds as well. When things are going well on bonds, you get a little bit of a maybe spreads or that default compensation reduces. Maybe rates go down as well. Your bond prices go up and you've got a kicker of a 5 8% yield, depending on which bond you look at. The opposite is also something you get a little bit of a buffer from income when things don't do so well that you don't have in equities. Bonds and equities have both their attractive total return potentials. I don't subscribe to bonds are always just the safe haven that can't return as much as equities. Do you think it's that bonds and stocks have a return profile that's different and like the, the probability distribution is different and you, you want to blend them together to create a portfolio that has a balanced outcome on right, left, center, tail, everything? For sure. And in, they have different investment paradigms as well. When you might want to be in one versus the other for that asymmetric versus symmetric profile, just kind of repeating what you, you said nicely there is equities have generally a symmetric profile. The S&P 500 goes up 1%, it goes down 1%. You've got a little bit of a or 5% and down 5% depending on your time periods and how much volatility. And you have a smidgen of dividend yield that is offsetting that, but that's not what investors are invested there for. Um, so it's kind of a symmetric return profile. Your upside downside capture, as we would talk about it, is about 100. Where the bonds and the bond side of the house, it's kind of an interesting thing that the Federal Reserve has, has pushed in some ways in a portfolio balance channel, uh, pushing you into asset classes that have better upside versus downside by pushing interest rates up. In a zero interest rate environment, they look a lot like equities in that return profile. You don't have much compounding yield to offset the downs and to enhance the ups, where in today's environment, a high-yield bond, for instance, that yields, say, 8%, well, let's say your default compensation goes up because the company becomes a little riskier, i.e. spreads widen. Let's say rates rise, risk-free interest rates rise, and the old seesaw of when yields rise, bond prices go down. So your, your bond on a price basis goes down. You're offset by a good 8% of buffer that you earn over the course of the year on that coupon yield. And so that's a, the buffer on the downside that you get as a sweetener on the upside as well. So your upside versus downside capture on bonds increases as rates rise just mathematically. And so it's something I think that the Fed is... Uh, underappreciatedly pushed in their portfolio balance channel. When they rise rates, they take you a little bit out of a riskier activity and put you in less risky activity. And part of the way they do that is saying, gosh, I find something that is higher interest rates, a little bit more attractive than prospective risky activity. But it's also your upside versus downside capture can be better in bonds than in equities. So with interest rates higher, bonds are less risky now than they were when interest rates were at zero. With interest rates higher, 
bonds at least have, I mean, they may have a volatility and you know, we saw that in 2022, they can be risky as far as a total return, but you have a little bit of a buffer to the downside for bonds. It makes them a little bit more attractive than in a low interest rate environment. You run a multi-asset portfolio, have portfolio managers reporting to you. What determines your asset allocation between stocks and bonds and maybe some alternatives? What percentage is typically equities in terms of a range? What percentage is, is fixed income now? And where are you at now or why? Like, are you favoring bonds over stocks or, or stocks over bonds relative to, you know, your firm's history? Yeah. Uh, the last piece is really important of every investor is, is uh, I think, should be required to have a central objective. And it's interesting to say is, you know, being in this business a long time, a lot of people like to say, I have no benchmark. Even if cash is your benchmark, you have a benchmark. You've got a central objective of what you're trying to achieve and how much risk you're going to uh, deploy for your investors. And make no mistake, risk can be a very positive term. Investors uh, want you to deploy risk to make improved returns over a central objective. And so our central objective would be, uh, well, we have a, a plethora of, of funds, of multi-asset funds that have different objectives, but let's take it from the standpoint of we have one flagship fund. Uh, our income opportunity fund that is a central objective of somewhere between 30 and 50% equity and the remainder call it mostly fixed income investment grade, uh, generally fixed income. And so operating from that central objective, and I use that band because it's tactical as well. There are pure balanced funds that have that as your central objective and they, they don't move. And then there are risk parity funds that use risk as their paradigm instead. We use a tactical orientation to say, just as you're talking about, you can find bonds more attractive than equities at different times. And so as it stands right now, we've started to find equities more attractive than bond returns. Whilst I just told you about bonds have become increasingly attractive at the same time, just 2023 is kind of the example there. Well, they may be more attractive in a higher interest rate environment, but if we see super positivity and uh, well, that was a magnificent seven, but even some in the economy, then you could see your equity still outperform. We're coming into an environment that the Fed is much, much more likely to drop rates, provide more accommodation, push investors back out into activity that will allow more economic growth. That is a good environment for equities generally over an investable cycle. So we are finding more opportunities in equities than we are in bonds. So we've started to overweight our bond relative to a strategic objective, overweight our equities, you know, at the cost of at the cost of bonds. Now, there's a lot of subtext in there as well as a long-term multi-asset investor and growing up a little bit in fixed income as well. Of when we talk about a percentage of bonds, I always kind of chuckle because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because of you know owning sixty percent of of U.S. Treasury bills is a whole lot different than owning sixty percent of high yield bonds or sixty percent of thirty year U.S. Treasuries, because of the effect of interest rate duration or interest rate sensitivity. How much your bond price moves when the parallel interest rate curve goes up versus it goes down, or how much risky activity impacts you so it spreads widen or they contract. When I think about that, our actual targets aren't in percentages of fixed income holdings. They are thinking about the interest rate duration or sensitivity we have. Do we think bond yields 
where U.S. Treasury yields are going to rise or fall. Obviously, if U.S. Treasury yields are rising across the parallel interest rate curve across all maturities, then by the old seesaw of bond math, prices are falling, and that's you know that's bad for your investment. And then we're thinking separately about how much credit risk we hold, and the credit risk we measure or have. The risk for that is how much are we getting paid for the default compensation or lending to a company? And really sometimes, you know, investors uh, in my field get caught up in all the nomenclature, but it's kind of simple. And the simplicity is as a, as a bond investor, you're, you're just a lender and you have to think like a lender to when you buy a Microsoft bond, you're lending money to Microsoft and you want Microsoft to be prudent and become less risky and have less chance of going into default. I use Microsoft as an example because Microsoft could default while we are sitting here talking. That's extremely unlikely, as you and I know, but could happen. And because it could happen, you could get, if I were to lend for, to Microsoft for a day or two, I should get paid just a little bit of extra over lending to the US Treasury, which is always thought of as the the risk-free asset. So when we think about risk and how we deploy it, getting back to, you know, we are overweight equities, but we are also, uh, when we invest in fixed income, it's not the percentages. We've actually uh, gone up a little bit as of the tail end of last year in our interest rate duration or sensitivity, and then recently reduced that a little bit further. So we actively manage our interest rate sensitivity based on the fair value of risk-free yields. And then, we are separately looking and saying, how much credit risk are we taking? Is this an environment where we could see defaults rising of corporate bonds or corporations having more uh, problems of financial conditions no longer being supportive of systematic risk rising, in which case spreads will rise and our bond prices will fall as a result, all the, all of things being neutral. So we've started to take down our uh, spread duration or our spread compensation as a result of where we see better activity and symmetrically invested in equities, where we see a supportive Fed pushing activity out to that spectrum. At the same time, we don't feel like we are as well compensated as we would like for the potential of financial conditions dropping and corporations having trouble uh, meeting their liabilities. So you think spreads are, are pretty tight, so you're not being compensated enough for that risk. You may as well go into equities and, and much lower risk bonds. Generally, yes. I say generally because there's always the, you know, we're, we still own corporate bonds where we feel like we are, we're overcompensated for the risk inherent. And so there are, there are select opportunities. We see less and less of the select opportunities to your, to your question. And we look at it in multiple ways. You know, obviously, you know, like the equity markets, you will look at spreads over time of the, the high yield spread on average being around 300 and uh, 50 basis points on unsecured bonds. So 3.5% over your, um, your U.S. Treasury is about the extra compensation you receive for your, your high yield bond. But you also look at it, so, you know, how is that in paradigms of history? And we look at it on a histogram basis. I always find that one interesting of saying over a 25-year period, how often are, do we sit in this bucket right now of being compensated 3.5% extra for the default compensation and high yield bonds. And what you find is about 80% of the time, 
more than that, actually, right now, it's about 86% of the time you're compensated more. Right now, it's about 14% of the time. This is about how much you're compensated or less, which means the majority of the time you're earning more for that kind of default compensation. It puts that economic framework in your mind of, well, are we in an average environment? Are we in an environment right now where there's much, much lower chance of a higher default experience of, of financial conditions experiencing a closure? And we think that's less likely. We, we still look at the, as the Fed would say, the long and variable lags of interest rate policy uh, are still concerning. And it's, you know, I, I venture off course a little bit in talking about macro, but, you know, you look at the consensus expectations right now for the 12 month forward uh, possibility of a recession. And I don't mean a technical two quarters of negative GDP growth recession. I mean, the National Bureau of Economic Research opines and says unemployment is rising, consumption is considerably lower, and uh, we have negative GDP growth, and we're going to call this a recession, is 45% right now. Really? I find that pretty high and too high. I think it reflects in part a risk premium of recession risk or a tail risk that we're still looking at the Fed hasn't turned yet. And the Fed hasn't officially gone to dropping interest rates, and we still worry about the long and variable lag of, of interest rate policy taking hold at some point. And so economists are still hedging their bets, if you will, by keeping a, a recession risk heightened until we really see the Fed actively turn. What metric are you using? You say economists, is it, you say 45% of economists are predicting recession. Is it a quantitative model or are they polling Wall Street economists? Because I might add, you know, there, I, I think it was Bloomberg reported uh, a economist poll in October 2022. You know, my, my viewers who listen to this have heard me say this a million times, but uh, not, the recession probability was assigned at 99%. So I might, you know, if the real if the real recession risk is 10%, you can't just go from 99 to 10%. You have to go to 45, go from third to second to, to first street. That is, and I think the 99% you quote would be the implied recession probability from something like a a 10-year U.S. government yield less a two-year government yield right now, which is an inverted, that's what we call the inverted interest rate curve. And there's an implied probability of recession because it's long been discussed that that's one of the best uh, predictors of a potential recession. Cam Harvey, actually, that you I think you had on your show before was uh, one of the originators of that research that talked about that. And when that swings around, then that becomes, so we went deep into negative territory of the 10-year yield was much less than the two-year yield, meaning potential for economic activity, if that's how you read it, coming down in the future, uh, and a heightened monetary policy pushing down economic activity, thus you have a heightened recession risk. That's at 99% probability. The 45% that I reference is more the every, it's all the economist consensus. So it's those economists that are uh, anywhere from the finger in the air, this is what I think, to having their own model that does a bottom-up GDP analysis and everywhere in between. But it's generally more fundamental in nature of a subjective uh, rationale from an economist. So right now, and that's a good point that you bring up around that the 99%, that reflecting a lot of indicators like the what I just talked about that we'd call the 210 curve, saying this inverted U.S. Treasury curve is telling us that we should be experiencing a recession because for the past seven times it has remained inver inverted uh, for any reasonable period, we have seen a following recession. And this time we haven't. And we're starting to see 
us coming out of many of the leading indicators that have historically told us we're going to experience a recession. And gosh, I can't tell you how many times in the last two years I've read, well, because this indicator is now uh, at this level, like the 210 curve, that means every time that's happened, you must experience a recession. It's nice to see some of those indicators doing a little bit the opposite now and you're getting the opposite narrative. One of those is CEO confidence. CEO confidence has ticked up recently. And you might say, well, at this level of rise of CEO confidence, we've never experienced a recession immediately following. So it's nice to see the turn of events. It's really interesting. And what did you say earlier about 86% of the time X outperformed Y in terms of high yield? So this is just where spreads are on a histogram. So if you if you take uh, all of the corporate bond spreads for the high yield universe and you put them into uh, X period of time, they're in this range and this range. And so you end up with a uh, somewhat of a skewed bell curve and you say about 86% of the time spreads are wider than where they are right now. And about 14% of the time they're tighter. They're providing less default compensation than where they are right now. We're at that point right now where, as I said, for your, your default compensation, for how much you get paid for taking a risk of lending to a company, of lending to Microsoft, about 86% of the time you get paid more. So then you go question, you put that in relativity to other economic things and say, so are we in that environment right now of, of we're at, you know, the top quartile of uh, where the economy is, is going to improve and the forward expectation for 2024 growth right now at 1.6%, I, I don't see that. I see the potential for downside risk. Like gold did. Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash HODLFG to learn more. That's vanek.com slash HODLFG. Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you could lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. You know, 86% of the time, high yield spreads have been wider. That suggests that you're not getting the best entry point in terms of valuation for, for the high yield market. How do you estimate valuations on the stock market? Um, and I know, you know, you don't own the stock market. You, you own a somewhat large number of individual securities. But you, when determining how much stocks to own, as well as stocks relative to bonds, as well as individual stocks, do you have any histograms there? It's a good question. Yes, we own individual stocks. And the you know, the one flagship I spoke about, we have 35 equities. And so it's a concentrated high conviction portfolio that, yes, it does have uh, allocation risk to overall equities. And so as, a, as an allocator, as, a, as someone that also thinks about the macro awareness, we're thinking about the valuation of equities as they play into that, even knowing that, yes, in that portfolio, we do, we do hold IBM. And um, that's driven by idiosyncratic or, or the company risk that goes up and down. On the valuation side of equities, one way to look at it is the same that others do of how much you get paid per unit of earnings. So on the corporate bond side, often it's how much do you get paid for the risk of default. On the equity side, this is how much are you paying for a stock 
for a unit of, of earnings or for its book value or for its cash flow. I, many measures differ by the sectors you're looking at. And cash flow, I think, is a, is a very good measure. Price to book is, is an old measure that is less utilized now, in part maybe because we've become more of a technological economy that, that the book value of the assets is not as important as it once was. So uh, we're looking now at, at forward price to earnings and price to cash flow being very meaningful metrics and just highlighting the forward cash, the price to earnings metric of it's, it's underappreciated. I think that when you look at a, a stock valuation, if that's your chosen measure of thinking just price to earnings, um, whether it's a cyclically adjusted, like a, like a keep measure or keep measure or not, more often than not, I want to look at the forward price to earnings. And yes, I want a good feel for that that forward estimation of earnings is a good one. But take NVIDIA as an example. And NVIDIA is not a stock that we hold right now in our in that flagship portfolio, but take NVIDIA as an example, where in May of last year, when NVIDIA came out with that extraordinary earnings report that it felt like that part kicked off the AI revolution. First, you had ChatGPT that came out in March, and my son all of a sudden is doing his term paper on ChatGPT. And then in May, uh, when NVIDIA came out and announced their earnings were going to be, their forward expectation was going to be significantly higher than where it was expected because companies were coming in and buying new chips because they started to see the light from ChatGPT. About eight weeks earlier, there was a lot of chat about it, so NVIDIA went up 20-odd percent in the stock market and I was talking a lot of chat about well how how expensive it had gotten that's only if you look at just the contemporaneous price to earnings you start to look at what nvidia is telling us about how much money they're going to make of, of future earnings so a forward price to earnings and they got cheaper mm -hmm. their estimation of how much they were going to make went up more than 20 percent. the price only went up 20 percent. the stock got cheaper so is it really that surprising that it kept rising afterwards I didn't think so. Yeah, that that is such a great point. You have people say, oh, the trailing multiple of Eli Lilly is 120. And it's like, well, I think they're, they're rolling out as epic. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are using that. So maybe the, the forward PE is lower than 120, may still be overvalued. I'm, I, I'm not making a claim on that. But a trailing PE, when earnings double, a trailing PE is probably pretty useless. Very much so. And then looking across markets, you know, you you do have to, we're, we're in a market now with um, some behemoths out there. Those are the, you know, much discussed Magnificent Seven in the S&P 500. And that's one of the key metrics that every investor watches come across their CNBC screen 500 times a day or wherever it is. So that's, you know, therein lies when all eyes are on it, it lies a metric of valuation. But I talked earlier about thinking about an equal weighted S&P 500, not just the average S&P 500, and just delving further into well, individual sectors, clearly, but individual stocks and ways to adjust the fundamental characteristics of your index so it's not purely driven by uh, a full index. Maybe it comes from my past as uh, an old physics and math major. I was thinking about the difference, just the difference between a mean and a median. And if you ever took your stats class, you heard a lot about knowing the difference between your mean and median. And when your mean or your average is well higher or well lower than your median, you've probably got some standout characteristics. And, and that's kind of where we are now is the median 
of the S&P 500 is quite different from its mean, then you should be looking at the, um, the valuation characteristics as well. And what you find is that stocks by and large, I don't find them extraordinarily expensive right now. They are above an average, yes. But by and large for a selector like ourselves that find individual opportunities that have revenue generation capabilities above the consensus of the market or margin expansion or new paradigms of product uh, development that might lead to the, the next Ozempic. Gosh, let me know when you find that one. Um, that's Those stocks are not extraordinarily expensive. What has become more expensive, we believe, is the large market cap stocks that maybe are more expensive in, in two parts. One is because Yes, there is technological innovation. And, and I believe, in my humble opinion, that what you saw with what we're seeing with artificial intelligence and machine learning is, is representative, representative of a, a true change in paradigm that will lead to revenue generation potential and margin expansion and new product opportunities for what is the lifeblood, lifeblood of the US economy, which is the small and medium-sized companies that also form the majority of our employment NVIDIA, basically, back to NVIDIA, they ain't making all that money unless somebody else is buying those chips. A lot of companies are buying those chips because they see the potential for new opportunities of the future. And let's take, for example, a pharmaceutical that sees not even a large pharmaceutical, a mid-sized pharmaceutical that is using AI to its benefit to compete with the larger ones to find those new early stage drugs that might have some potential to use uh, technology to go through protein folding techniques and find a next potential drug that they could put into phase one and phase two, because you still have to go through the FDA. It, the artificial intelligence isn't going to approve your drug for you. That takes a couple of years. So NVIDIA is, I believe, and many of these larger companies are benefiting because they are at the forefront of some of these capture potentials. NVIDIA is probably key on that. And that ecosystem that represents some of the other stocks that are the um, transistors and the, the wafer technology out there. The other companies are going to have a good opportunity for revenue generation and large expansion and multiple expansion as well. When we start to see those opportunities, the multiple expansion means we say that's, that's not the fundamental necessarily. That's simply the investor like myself starting to see the light of future potential and paying more for these, those potential earnings because we see the light and the transparency of that future potential. Long story short, I still find the valuation attractive on, on equities across many, but it takes more of a selector to capture those. So valuations have increased a fair amount, it's fair to say, into Magnificent 7, but you think the rest of the market, there are bargains or attractive valuations to be found, even if they're you know, slightly above average valuation, uh, that can be justified. Tell us about, okay, so you said you had 30 or 35 stocks in the equity portfolio. Tell us about how you think about return attribution. Do you think of, oh, it's going to be, you know, one to two stocks or, you know, maybe five to seven stocks is, is really going to generate the returns and the rest of them, I'd be, I'd be happy if they, you know, went nowhere. Whereas maybe in the bond portfolio, your average bond is paid off and it's, it's the exceptional stocks that go badly, whereas exceptional bonds that turn out bad, whereas in stocks, it's the exceptional ones that turn out good. I spent my spent my life and career oftentimes building out allocation models and going through the structure and understanding that. And as with my allocation hat on, 
allocation effect, that means your exposure to not the idiosyncratic, not whether IBM does extraordinarily well and is able to cut costs and realize better revenues, but the whether the market goes up or down based on what the Fed does or what oil prices do or end consumer demand is generally doing and the growth of the US economy, that's allocation effect. And allocation effect is generally, call it 70 to 80% of a stock's returns. That does not mean that the only thing you're really invested in is this allocation effect and whether the stocks go up or down. We know there's a, a beta, which is kind of allocation effect when you've got a beta of 1.1 and to the S&P 500 and the S&P 500 rises 1%, you expect to go up 1.1%, whether or not the stock is doing better or not. That's it's kind of an allocation effect. Um, that doesn't mean you're just totally exposed to that. As, as an allocator and as a macro aware person, then I want to either embrace those allocation effect pieces or reduce those allocation effect pieces where I, I either don't want to be exposed or I don't believe in a thematic and focus then as much as I can on whether IBM is going to be a great contributor. So that's that's part one of there's a there's a difference in your attribution between allocation effect and selection effect. Allocation effect is is large, but you can either compress that and focus on idiosyncratic or selection effect. Uh, or you can embrace some of that where you feel like you have decent insight and feel like there's going to be a turn in the economy, for instance, and it goes further. And that's where we talk about whether my equity exposure may be larger or smaller. Uh, the second question you asked was around, uh, really around diversification and whether it's one or two stocks that represent a large return opportunity and the remainder are effectively the the allocation effect or, or I just expect them to keep up with the market, if you will. I, I don't think like that. I think more every individual opportunity we hold, we only hold 35 and we have a, you know, we have a range of, of um, how many we hold, but it's going to be high conviction and smaller for, for let's say this flagship income opportunities fund. From that perspective, then we want to hold each individual opportunity that represents a good upside. And the way we think about it is we have analysts that go through and do the subjective analysis. We use the objective data to help inform our decisions. And then in the end, it's really, I, I like those places where we feel like we can add subjective characteristics to it and say, actually, I heard the CFO uh, talk and I spoke to him directly. And my understanding is a little bit different than what the consensus understanding is. And I believe that they have found a new path for revenue generation that is X. That is on each of those individual things that leads to something like a discounted cash flow analysis or that allows us to establish a price target. So every individual stock that I hold would have a one year, a three year and a downside price target. Uh, the downside to me is is a very important and underappreciated uh, metric, no pun intended on the underappreciated on the downside. The many of the, if you look at a street side analysis, many of just the straight uh, investment banks or the street side analysis will just show you a straight price target where I want to know what can go bump in the night. I want to know when that project, that aforementioned project that we heard the CFO talking about doesn't come through and it's highly expected that it's going to come through. How bad is that for the forward expectation for the price target? Uh, and then that's something we can monitor. So we're looking for an upside and we're actively looking to say, what might a downside be? And me as an old physics and math guy, then I pull those two things together to an expected value. And I'm looking generally at a great expected value across 
my individual holdings. So back to the, the original question of, yes, we've got the allocation effect in the portfolio. We aim to get that right with good asset allocation with macro awareness. And then we've got this high selectivity and this high conviction. And I want the best expected value that I can compare apples to apples with other assets, whether they be bonds or uh, equities and deliver the best risk adjusted reward to an investor. But that's more idiosyncratic across each individual selection. Do you change or adjust your one and three year downside scenario with volatility of the broad market as well as the volatility of the stocks? To a degree, yes. I mean, the volatility of the stock market or the risk premium of the stock market may have effects on on riskiness and discounting of a stock. And so there is a there's a change metric there that as we go through and review, it, it doesn't normally change the expectations of the realized cash flows, but it may change the attractiveness of those realized cash flows. So we are monitoring a risk premium of the market to help inform us. But by and large, that's the rising or falling tide that lifts or drops all boats when you do the analysis. And when I look at apples to apples analysis of my expected returns across a whole lot, then maybe what differs is the near term or long termness of those cash flows. Long term cash flows may be discounted at a higher rate, a higher risk premium, and may become less attractive to more value oriented cash flow generative in the near term type companies. Thanks. And tell us about your view on breadth in the market. I hear, and I wonder, if, is it true that you know it's only the Magnificent Seven that's been leading the S&P 500? It's been a, a narrow uh, rally. How true is that? And then what are your thoughts on whether it will broaden out, either by the stock market going down or by the rest of the stock market, not including the Mag 7, participating in the, in the appreciation? We did see a lot of narrowness. Uh, are still seeing some, you know, some of that narrowness. And when I say narrowness, what that means is, uh, for example, up until October 27th of last year, I remember because it was my birthday, um, when we saw the turn, up until October 27th of last year, year to date, the S&P 500 was up significantly on the order of 13, 15%, while 493 securities in the S&P 500 were down on the year with seven stocks that comprise all that. That's So that's narrowness. You've got seven stocks that are driving everything. And we do have to recall those seven stocks aren't small. They are 30% of the market capitalization of the S&P 500 and a smaller amount, but still a large amount of the revenue generation when you look at the underlying of the S&P 500. So these are large companies and there is some statement, but they were it was an overly narrow driven rally last year. And we're still seeing some of that where we see a lot of market appreciation, more market appreciation and uh, well, the Magnificent Seven. And as we get some drop out, it becomes the the Super Six, then the Fab Five, and maybe next it's going to be the, who knows, the Fab Four, whatever it's next. Magnificent but One. The, down to the Magnificent One. Yes. Right now we still see a bit of that narrowness. I believe very much in, a long-term broadening. I think that is a cyclical component. It doesn't mean that these large companies can't continue to perform. And if we see a downturn in these companies, uh, sorry, a downturn in the economy or a downturn in the markets, uh, some of these companies could represent a value for somewhat of a safe haven. They have generally lower debt metrics than many peers. These are more oriented towards technology, which oftentimes is lower in 
uh, borrowing or, or leverage because they have lesser known cash flows. So that's one read on it that I have. Um, I do see the broadening and part that broadening, meaning others will participate to use that poor economic term, that poor political term. Um, the trickle down effect should uh, benefit many of those. And let's go back and remember that the long-term innovation and lifeblood of our economy in terms of employment and new revenue generation isn't these larger companies. It is small mid-cap companies that find opportunities, take risk, and find the areas of the market and the U.S. consumer that then they gain from. I believe that the innovation that has led to some of this market appreciation of those seven stocks, those seven companies, will benefit many of the companies that are in that whatever we call the 493 remaining. It's going to take some time. How common is it for breadth to be this narrow and also for the earnings breadth to be this? I mean, you know, NVIDIA has more than doubled its earnings. All the Mag 7 stocks, except for Tesla, have, have done you know, quite well in terms of earnings, some more than others. When you study history and you learn from you know, running the data from the 70s, 80s, 90s, how common is this? And you know, how does it usually end out? Great question, because this is cyclical in many respects. Breadth itself, or that factor is a somewhat of a cyclical factor. Uh, we see the aggregation of profits in an individual sector that then broaden out. We saw that in the energy sector that then broadened out. Uh, this one, I believe, is even more cyclical in that the the potential that has been flagged by these seven stocks, or in a lot of ways, NVIDIA, that is one of our best macro indicators right now, it almost must lead to broadening for them to realize the sales of all of the expected activity that they're signaling in their earnings. So. I see the cyclicality. We are very wide right now in where that breadth is. That's a big difference or we're far out on the standard deviation spectrum. Maybe a best way to look at that is the differential between value and growth stocks in some respects. You know, the, they form a smaller portion of the, the growthy stocks, but growth stocks have been a significant outperformer and a uh, and over it's near a two standard deviation outperformance over value equity over the last I think it's five years. So it's a it's a significant uh, outperformer, but that's a cyclical factor, and we will see that come back when cash flows become realized and either uh, some of the new revenue generation potentials become more transparent or even realized in the cash flows. Then that becomes a cyclical factor. The second one you addressed is is earnings and whether earnings themselves on the breadth. And it, it goes very much hand in hand, I believe, on that. Uh, we are seeing uh, narrowness in earnings as well that we've already started to see normalize. And you have to only look at, at this earnings cycle. We saw an earnings cycle last year. We saw three quarters of negative earnings growth last year. That was our recession. Uh, we're coming out of that now. And if we look at just this, this earning cycle that we're finishing up, uh, we're near finishing here, we are seeing considerable better earnings on a median basis. So companies are starting to project uh, better potential and companies are starting to show better than consensus earnings. And while we are still seeing good earnings from the Magnificent Seven, it's not just them. It is Toll Brothers out today with home building activity. Um, 
you know, that's a broadening that we're seeing in earnings. And I think that will happen sooner than we see the realization in the market. Isn't the, the old adage that stocks lead the earnings cycle? What, is there a reason you think that this might not, that, you know, this time the earnings cycle would lead the stocks? I think right now it's partially because it's very growth and future oriented where this breadth is, meaning this is in Google and NVIDIA and IBM and Apple and Microsoft and Tesla. Uh, these are in stocks that have a much further earnings paradigm. That breadth is going to be realized more in value. So when we see an expansion, it's going to be expansion more into nearer time cash flow realization. If it were just a straight comparison of like the energy cycle of old, where we saw uh, much lower, much more narrowness in the you know from the energy sector, then yes, I think that you know you probably see stocks start to lead because we're all about the same cash flow realization timing. Now we're talking kind of cash flow differentials between growth and value because we're so growth oriented. I start to think that we're going to see times like now, something like a Toll Brothers, which is much more near-term cash flow profile oriented, that's going to lead the profile of the market. But we'll see. Thanks. You're talking about the timing of cash flows and you know that's the, the concept of you know, Tesla. Most of the money they're going to make you know, is going to be after 2040, whereas a coal company, like they're probably, you know, they might be making the most money that they'll ever make. They're probably not going to be, you know, made, not even exist in, in 2050, you know, but, but, but who knows that, so that's a concept. I'm familiar with that concept in the equity world, but it's so much less rigorous than in the bond world where, okay, you're going to be paid a coupon semi-annually for 10 years. You know, you can mathematically to, to many decimal places, identify your duration and you know, how much the bond price is going to move with, according to a change in interest rates. With equities, it's, it's like I, I never have done the work, to, to, but I don't, I don't even know if people attempt to define that thinking of the sort of Tesla versus the, the coal company. Because in 2022, I, you know, as I'm sure you know, you, you were aware, there's a narrative of interest rates are rising and it's going to hurt growth stocks. And I mean, anytime bonds sold off, the Nasdaq sold off well, uh, you know, alongside it. But this year, I mean, the growthiest names like like Nvidia have soared, and AI stocks, which are all about the future, have soared as interest rates have remained high. So, is there you know as putting your physics quant mathematical hat on, is there anything there there when it comes to the concept of equity duration? Sure. When we talk about equity durations, this is an old school fixed income guy as well. That's a modified or a Macaulay duration, and it has a very specific formula. And then when we talk about equity duration, it's always equity empirical duration, meaning could be here, could be there. And you're exactly right. That's a conundrum we've seen. I was just talking to somebody about the artificial intelligence investment cycle and whether companies will be more reluctant to invest at higher rates than they were. And that's kind of the same discussion point of what's happened with growth during times of rising rates now when it's done extraordinarily well. You've seen these seven companies and I, I generally think technological innovation and uh, the potential has well outstripped the discounting effect. The discounting effect itself is, it's empirical as it is. Less transparency in cash flows and you're discounting cash flows that have ill transparency. Uh, it doesn't always work over a full cycle. It's, it's empirical. Uh, as the mathematician would hate it, the physicists love it. And it's kind of how I think about that one. But the companies now, are they worried about investing in AI? And are they going to wait in investing in AI because interest rates are relatively high to the past 10 or 15 years? No. I think the same thing in the market cycle. They're not going to wait because they can't. They're forced into it. 
this is uh, this is technological innovation that they almost have to be a participant in, or at least have to have a, a strategy for participation or non-participation. And so we're seeing similar in the market where I think that the technological innovation outstripped the narrative of higher discounting on further cash flows. If we hadn't had all of this, if this were just a, you know, there was nothing new happening in the, the technology world at large and rates went up, then generally you might expect to see the triple Qs drop, the NASDAQ drop. That's just not what we've seen in part because technology has outstripped that effect. Sorry to interrupt. Just want to tell you about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto symposium in London, the Digital Asset Summit, which is running from March 18th to March 20th. Everyone in crypto is going to be there, not just the experts and policymakers, but the real industry leaders writing the checks. Over $800 billion in assets is going to be represented. Anyone who's anyone in crypto is going to be there. So if you're into crypto and you haven't bought your ticket yet, the time is now to get your ticket. I would not wait any longer. We've got some exciting guests on the macro side too. Julian Brigden, Michael Howell. And yes, I can confirm at last the rumors are true. Joseph Wang, the Fed guy himself, is going to be there too. I'll be hosting a panel with these macro heavyweights that you don't want to miss. So be there or be square. Click the link in the description and use code FG10 to get 10% off. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. How does the AI bull market that, you know, probably began a little, little over a year ago, maybe, how does that compare to the the late 90s uh, tech bubble, dot com bubble? You know, some of the similarities I find kind of interesting are, well, the, the rapidity of this AI cycle is faster to me. The potential for adoption, we just talked about last year when ChatGPT came out in March, Eight weeks later, we had NVIDIA. It felt like the world had changed overnight almost. We had data rooms, like in a, a source of like eight weeks, data rooms were becoming over capacity because, uh, because of adoption of new technology was leading to um, problems in, in data rooms. That was, that was a big transitional change. The actual effect, it kind of feels like back when something like Google was introduced and I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but people used to send around these links that would say, you know, you'd say, what, how do I find something? And you'd send around a link that would say, how do I Google how to find a restaurant? And it would take it to Google and it would write it in there for you. And it was, it was before people really understood and they were nervous about it. We're somewhat in that same phase now of still of artificial intelligence sounds cool and wild and crazy. It's great, but really it's pretty simple. Just go to, chatgpt.com and type in your question and you're using AI. And I think a lot of people don't realize that we're still in that phase of people aren't sure where to find the efficiencies, if they can find the efficiencies and if those efficiencies are useful and they don't trust those efficiencies or those new ideas. It's about the same on that bit. I think this is more accelerated. Uh, I think this is oh, it's as impactful. I mean, that that paradigm created uh, visibility and access to a range of services and products, which previously had much harder time coming to market. And this creates a whole new set of um, revenue potentials and, and efficiency gains for the utilities that may work for some and don't work for others. But just planning your vacation rather than spending all of that time going to Google and researching what cities are in Italy and where might I stay. I, I encourage you next time to go to Bard or now called Gemini or chat GPT and type in 
I've got five day vacation with two kids that are 14 and 12 and I might take my mother-in-law and I want to stay mid range uh, and go to Italy and it will we'll lay it out for you and you can pretty much save about five hours of your life researching things and book your vacation. So whether it's personal or professional, there's efficiency gains to be had. And I, I think we're in a bit that same uh, adoption cycle. I think this is faster than we have seen before. Uh, I am uncertain still on the revenue realization potential that is out there. I know it's there and our job is to go find areas where uh, either, as I say, efficiency gains or new revenue potential is going to help companies. Um, or as you, as you mentioned on the bond side, if it reduces their default risk, in some cases, it may be the opposite. If we see companies that get scared and over lever to adopt technology, they don't know much about, uh, would that lead to issues on, you know, me as a bond investor of the only thing I'm really worried about is them paying back their bonds, not the upside. So as a bond investor and an equity investor, certainly I'm, I'm thinking about those historical paradigms and where it comes out. I think it'll lead to a lot of opportunity for, for astute investors across the value and the growth paradigm. These aren't just growth companies that will benefit. This is, you know, you look at Lowe's, the home supply store, they've got the Lobot that you can go on and it helps you uh, identify new projects in areas of need. And it, they've got another um, artificial intelligence piece that they've been adopting that looks like they are going through and uh, optimizing how you might view products on aisles and where you might purchase further and how they might best serve their consumer that will help them. And it's not a new product line. It's not necessarily an efficiency. It's just improving their business. So whichever growth or value, we'll, I think we're going to see opportunity, hopefully not overspending. Got it. Thanks. Earlier, you talked about your fixed income all allocation. I think you said you were reducing your credit risk, but maybe that you were adding your duration risk. Why is that? And, and is your view to you know, go basically go further out in the duration risk. Does that imply that you think the Federal Reserve is going to cut more than it's priced in? Sure, credit risk is an easier one to to look at. We talked about that a bit on uh, just generally finding not enough compensation for default risk, which is more systematic in nature generally, for, especially for high grade companies, uh, and finding more of that uh, you know potential for capital appreciation in in the equity market, and then interest rate sensitivity or our duration. Um, we started to see the, a lot of the turn last year, at the tail end of last year, um, as I said, it really kicked off on my, my birthday on when interest rates started to drop and dropped significantly for the fourth quarter of last year. Now uh, we had added a little bit of duration right now. We, um, are, I don't know, we're sitting about neutral on our overall target for interest rate duration. The fed itself, what I generally tell investors and you believe for a long-term environment we talk a lot about oh my gosh is the fed gonna cut rates in march or may or june and or you know some like larry summers recently even discussed well there's a 15 percent probability that the fed could come back turn tail and hike rates i i don't believe that i think they've communicated pretty well chairman powell going on to 60 minutes and telling the, the market directly you know really the next move is we're going to cut rates. He didn't say that directly, but it was pretty close. So we've started to see that narrative shift pretty strongly that whether it's March or May or June is less important than looking at the neutral rate. The neutral rate is that longer term rate, which balances their dual mandate of labor and inflation. And right now they're telling us a neutral rate or their long-term dot is around two and a half percent. 
that's way lower than where we are now. So we've said, yes, with the Fed is, is highly likely to cut rates next as their next move, whether it happens in March or May or June is less important to me than continuing to communicate that they are uh, going to be headed down to a neutral rate and they can be accommodative in any communication that we see on um, their accommodativeness to what I used to call the third leg of the monetary policy uh, stool, which is the wealth effect. And the wealth effect, of course, is your 401k plan or the S&P 500 and the value of your house, meaning if markets drop significantly, would the old Greenspan put come back into force? Would they be able to drop rates to support? And whether they will, I believe they will. The important part is they can and they couldn't do that at zero interest rates. So they've got the potential of a volatility buffer, if you will, of, of reducing the negative impact of the third leg of the stool while still focusing on the long-term of a balanced neutral rate that is lower than where we are now, of a neutral rate that is supportive of a balanced full employment and 2% inflation mandate. Because interest rates are higher, they can go lower. So there can be a, a net loosening that the Federal Reserve has that button when when interest rates at zero, it's done. I mean, they could go negative, but that, that's a, you know, not, not really something they want to do. So how would you characterize financial conditions right now? Are they tight or loose? Many people, you know, wind the clock back two years ago would have said, okay, if you're telling me in two years, the Federal Reserve would have done a ton of quantitative te- tightening, it's, its balance sheet is much smaller, or somewhat smaller, and interest rates, instead of being at zero, would be at five and three-eighths. I think a lot of people would say that is a financially tight environment. And yet, many of the things the Federal Reserve does not control, credit spreads, equity valuations, many other things, are pretty loose. I mean, the stock market is around all-time highs. As you said, you know, high-yield spreads in that 86th percentile of, of very narrow spreads. So our financial conditions tight, easy, or in, in the middle right now? And, and how much does that have to do with the, the Fed? I often think that uh, if you'd done a Rip Van Winkle in 2020 and gone to sleep, actually, you know, beginning in 2020 and gone to sleep and then woken up today and said, well, so wait a second, we've been through a, a global pandemic, uh, a, a near war in the Middle East and a war in uh, Eurasia. And interest rates are up by 500 basis points. Our financial conditions, well, one, you go, where's the S&P? And you wouldn't say it's at 5,000. Uh, and number two, if you look at financial conditions, you'd say it's probably pretty constrictive right now. Gosh, that's not the case. And that's not the case. We've got companies that are opining with their feet uh, in the first month of this year, first two months of this year, really, on corporate issuance and saying, we're going to come to market and borrow in one to... Uh, for one part, to extend out their liabilities so we don't end up with a credit crunch in 25, 26. Still a possibility, but uh, extending out those liabilities. And two, they're financing projects. And if they are buying companies and financing projects by borrowing, they're opining directly with their feet to say forward returns on these projects are higher than where they're borrowing. And so at elevated interest rates, we're still saying we see decent nominal growth in the economy. Um, that means financial conditions can be not just constrictive, uh, but they can be more open. And I believe they are more open, even though we're at a higher rate than we've been over the, 
that portion before 2022 for about 10 years. Uh, you know, I see open financial conditions right now and reasonably strong financial conditions. The interest rate is higher. That causes some consternation, but so is nominal growth, number one. And that nominal growth is, uh, you know, relative to the interest rates, the companies are pining and saying that they're taking advantage of that to experience longer term nominal growth for those projects. And, you know, we see a housing market that is surprisingly resilient so far. I would say I, you know, I'm probably not alone when I say I'm, I'm actually surprised we didn't see more of a drawdown in the housing market nationwide when mortgage rates went up to 8%. They're not there now. They've come down and the market responded, okay, maybe this, you know, we could use the excuse of uh, there's lower supply in the housing market and lower mobility because of uh, other areas, but that was, you know, something that was telling us anyway, that the financial conditions as told to us by those that really are taking advantage of them for either borrowing for new projects or not, are still reasonably strong. You know, that's a, I, I monitor about five different financial conditions indices because it's a really great way to try and measure when you might see systematic risk emerge. When financial conditions closure happens, if we were to see bond spreads widen significantly, lenders like myself in the market say, I'm going to step back and I'm not going to lend as much because I forecast that default risk is going to go much, much higher. At the same time that yes, interest rates are, are rising and so companies are not able to roll their liabilities and then we're seeing problems in uh, the equity market and the IPO market, all areas that we've seen a little bit of, but maybe on a rolling basis, we see that all at the same time that leads to systematic risk. And that often is one of the precursors of what I'd say is a, you know, it's a large drawdown is when, when credit market sees or financial conditions sees. So we watch that very closely for the sharp turns. And you don't see that now? Not at this point, no. So you said your income-focused fund is the flagship fund. How does it differ when you're seeking out equities that pay a dividend from a non-income-oriented fund? And I you know, imagine that means that you're precluded from buying, for example, Berkshire Hathaway, which does not pay a, a dividend. And how does that kind of shape the investing process? Yeah, good question. We're, we're not necessarily precluded from buying something like a Berkshire Hathaway, which surely one day they will pay a dividend. Uh, but you're right. They don't today, even if if uh, Mr. Buffett tells us they never will. Uh, we are looking for capital appreciation. And you're right that there are different constituencies here. There are those income funds that are really pushed into just the high dividend yields, just the, the best places for um, income on their corporate bonds or high yield bonds. And it leads to a big factor bias or, or more allocation effect and more correlation to the overall market. And then, of course, you have those funds that don't have uh, any paradigm at all. And so they have less of the income buffer, but they are uh, probably more growthy because that now forms 30% of the S&P 500. That's just a large portion of the market. We are, I'd say, more income oriented, but we aren't forced into the highest dividend yields. We are looking at areas where if there are companies, we use NVIDIA as the example, they pay such a small portion of a dividend. Uh, that it's not really meaningful, but they do pay a little dividend. We looked at them, we held them for a bit, as and we experienced a, a great capital appreciation from um, from Nvidia in part because what we're looking for is good income generation, but 
if we find great opportunities for capital appreciation, then that's a second leg of our stool. And our third leg of the stool is, as I talked about, having a downside analysis or a uh, downside target. That's that's how we think about the market of, yes, income is, is very important. And for that flagship fund of what we're trying to achieve, capital appreciation is also important. So I'm not picking companies simply because they have a high dividend yield or a high dividend coverage or, or a growing dividend. All those things are important when you consider a dividend. But I, I want to see capital appreciation. I want to see a potential for the company to do well and to create new efficiencies, to expand their margins, maybe to expand their multiple, to have new revenue generation that the, that the market doesn't expect. You probably hear a lot of those things over again of these, these are the things that we're looking for to deliver good free cash flows and, and elevated free cash flows, ideally over what the market expects. Very interesting. Well, uh, Adrian, thank you so much for uh, coming on for guidance. It's been a pleasure to, to hear you share your, your views and uh, thanks everyone for watching. Likewise, thank you for your time. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Reminder that Forward Guidance episodes are available on all podcast apps and on Twitter, where I post them regularly at JackFarley96. Thanks again. Until next time.